Now, dear ones, today, whereas we continue in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to learn that God is faithful to protect the son Jesus from Herod's rage by bringing him on a new exodus with his mother Mary and his father Joseph into Egypt. Now, from this, we're going to learn that God is always faithful to protect the son, whether it was from a wicked Pharaoh in Moses' day or a wicked king Herod in Jesus' day, God has always protected the Son. And he does so so that the Son comes at the very ordained time that he can live the perfect life that you and I cannot, that he would die on the cross a propitious death for us so that we can have forgiveness of sins. But you and I are also going to learn that not only does God always protect the Son, but because you and I have trusted in Christ, he's going to protect us, his sons and daughters, that he really will conform us to the image of Christ and bring us to glory. And brothers and sisters, as the life in America and around the world becomes more difficult, I think that this is all the more important, that you and I would trust that God would protect us, bring us to glory so that you and I will not fear man, but fear God, and that we would serve him all of our days. Now, I want to begin today by talking about two purposes that Matthew has. One is more pronounced than the other, but they're both true in this pericope. And by the way, I'm not mispronouncing periscope. Every time I write pericope, my little corrective engine that handles misspellings says periscope. But a pericope is a section of literature that goes together. And so we're in a pericope, verses 13 through 15, And there are two things I think Matthew intends for us to see. Number one, that Jesus is the new Moses. Now, this will culminate when we get to Matthew 17. But remember, it was Moses who said in Deuteronomy 18.15 that God would raise up amongst the Israelites a prophet like him. And that if the people wouldn't listen to him, it would be required of them. And so Jesus is going to be depicted in the book of Matthew, not just as the prophet par excellence, but as the mediator of the new covenant. And this will culminate when we get to Matthew chapter 17. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration will be declared to be the fulfillment of that prophet. So it begins here, though, in chapter 2. But the most pronounced purpose of Matthew 2, 13 through 15 is that you and I would see Jesus as God's firstborn son. But I will contend that in order to understand this, I think we have to understand Exodus 4.22. So I'm going to put that passage on the screen, and then I'm going to explain to you why this is so important as background for the passage we're covering today. Let's look at Exodus 4.22. This is the instruction that God gave to Moses as to what he was to say to Pharaoh. It said, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is is my son, my firstborn. Now, I want you to notice here in blue, the fact that Israel is God's firstborn son is very significant. But in our American culture, we often see the firstborn in just a superficial way. They're the first one out of the chute, so be it. They're the oldest, and they might get to drive mom and dad's car first, but that's about the only privilege. But that's not the way it was in the ancient Near East in the time of Christ. And what you have to realize is that there were three privileges and responsibilities conveyed on the firstborn status. And once you see that, 
It'll explain the significance of Israel. It'll explain the significance of Christ as well to a certain degree as God's firstborn son. So let's talk about those three privileges conveyed with the firstborn status. The first was that the firstborn in the ancient Near East was regarded as a pathbreaker, a pathbreaker who first opened the womb and therefore was considered preeminent in strength. Why? Because they enabled the other children to come out easier. Now, remember, this isn't a biological issue. This is just how the ancients thought. He was the pathbreaker, the firstborn son. In fact, in Genesis 49.3, remember, Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son, and he's called preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. You can see that again in Genesis 49.3. Now, that's the first thing. They were the pathbreaker. The second issue regarding the firstborn is that they were the ones who were given the inheritance rights. In fact, in Deuteronomy 21.17, it laid out that the firstborn was to be given a double portion. And the reason for that is if the father of the family was ever incapacitated, the firstborn was to take over and take care of the rest of the family. They were the firstborn son given all of the inheritance rights of the father. The third thing that was true of the firstborn is, remember, during the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there wasn't a central temple for them to go worship God. So the father of the family would do that on behalf of the family, but if he was incapacitated, it was the right of the firstborn to be a priest before God and represent the family. Now, do you understand, then, this colors the way we understand Esau is his selling of his birthright, his firstborn status. It explains why it's so egregious. You see, Esau thought so little of being a priest before God and representing the family and also having the inheritance rights of the messianic promises. He's willing to sell it for a bowl of beans. That's how little he thought of that. That's why it's so condemnable. Now, why is this so important When we come to this passage in Matthew, because what God said of Israel was that he was the firstborn that had all of these rights. Israel was to be the pathbreaker unto salvation for the world. They were the ones who were given the inheritance rights of God, and they were to be priests before men. And so do you see then what a crisis it was when Pharaoh and the Egyptians were crushing the people of Israel, God's firstborn. So what does God do at the first exodus? He does a reversal. He says, if you're going to mess with my firstborn, I'm going to kill your firstborn. And in the 10th plague, what does God do at the Passover? He kills the firstborn of Egypt because they were mistreating God's firstborn. But brothers and sisters, remember, if Israel is lost in Egypt, his firstborn, who do you really lose? You lose Jesus, the ultimate firstborn, who is the pathbreaker unto salvation. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, he's called the Archegos, the pathbreaker, the Lewis and Clark who leads us into new paths of salvation. He's the one who has the ultimate inheritance rights. The entire kingdom belongs to him. And he is the ultimate mediator and priest before God. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Dear ones, today you and I are going to see that Jesus is going to have to go on a new exodus. Because whether it was Pharaoh killing the firstborn son in Moses' day, or it's Herod killing the firstborn son in Jesus' day, 
if God doesn't protect the sun, you and I don't have Easter and we don't have Christmas. We're left in our sins. That's the issue. And so, brothers and sisters, we find, yes, indeed, Jesus, the son, is going on a new exodus. That's what we learn here in verse 13. Notice Matthew says, now when they, now remember, that's the Magi, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Brothers and sisters, notice in red you have this imperative command by the angel to take Jesus to Egypt. And one of the questions this raises was, why Egypt? Why not some other nation? Well, probably for a couple of reasons, Egypt was the best choice. Number one, it was closest. It was just southwest of Judah. That would have been the closest nation to go. But more importantly, in the time of Jesus in the first century, there were many, many Jews living in Egypt. In fact, a third of the population of Alexandria, one of the largest cities in Egypt, a third of that population was Jewish. Uh, Philo, the famous Jewish historian, said that there was a million Jews in and around the precincts of Alexandria, Egypt, in the first century. And so that, I think, explains why they brought him there. Now, I want you to see two typologies. One is the Moses typology. It begins here but we will see it proceed through the book of Matthew. Isn't it interesting that back in Exodus chapter 2, Moses, remember when he had defended the Israelite against the mistreatment of the Egyptian, he ended up killing that Egyptian? Well, remember, he had to flee from the Pharaoh. He fled from a king. Now you see Jesus fleeing from the king. And so throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew's going to show Jesus in some sense as the new Moses. Remember, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That's what we're going to find out. Okay, now, the other typology that I want you to see here is that Jesus is God's firstborn son. The firstborn son that if allowed to perish at the hands of Herod, the promises of God are over. If you lost Israel during the first exodus, the messianic promises are over. If you lose Jesus to Herod, the messianic promises are over. And so Jesus here is going on a new exodus. In fact, now we are given in verses 14 through 15 an explicit connection between Israel's protection and Jesus' protection in this new exodus. Notice what it says. Matthew 2, 14 through 15 it says, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the first thing I want you to see is I want you to note the urgency by which Joseph ends up taking the son and his wife Mary and leaving for Egypt. It shows that, yes, the angel meant business. He got up that very night and left Bethlehem for the land of Egypt. Why? Why is that so significant? Because you didn't travel normally at night. Think about it. You didn't have streetlights. There were ro roving marauders, bands of robbers that would go after people on roads at night. 
And so the fact that Joseph was willing to go at night shows that this was a very dangerous situation, that he had to immediately obey for the protection of the son. Now, notice in verse 15, Matthew gives you a summary of the situation. Notice he says that he remained there until the death of Herod. Now, remember, Herod dies in 4 BC. When was Jesus born? Well, he was born in 4 BC. So what that indicates then, I think, is that Jesus probably wasn't in Egypt for years, but rather months. But again, he is on an exodus to Egypt in this regard because God always protects the son. Now, notice at the end of verse 15, notice in blue, Matthew sees Jesus' exodus into Egypt as a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, the last portion of which says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this obviously is not a direct prophecy. Why? Because the original prophecy of Hosea 11.1 was about the salvation of Israel. Israel was called out of Egypt. So how is it that Matthew is applying this now to Jesus Christ? Is he not just reading into the text something that wasn't there? The first promise is about Israel. Now he's applying it to Christ. Well, certainly Matthew sees this prophecy as a typology. Now remember, in typology, you have a pattern in the old and a fulfillment of that pattern in the new. And certainly that's what Matthew understands regarding Hosea 11.1. That just as God was faithful to protect his firstborn son with the inheritance rights, at the first exodus, protecting Israel from Egypt, now he's faithful in protecting the son, the firstborn, with the inheritance rights from Herod. And brothers and sisters, what you and I are going to learn from this is that if God went through such extraordinary means to protect his son, how much more will he protect you, the adopted sons and daughters who belong to Christ? He will. He will protect you. He's going to bring you to glory. He's going to ensure that you're conformed to the image of Christ, that one day you'll be having a resurrection. One day you're going to be sinless. One day the kingdom that belongs to Christ will be yours. And so just as God always protected the son, he's always going to protect his sons and daughters to bring them to glory. Now, one thing I want to point out before we get into the applications is I want to point out this Exodus pattern that I think we're all intended to see. This Exodus pattern is inherent in the book of Matthew, and it begins with these things that are very common. For example, Pharaoh wants to kill the Jewish babies, remember, in Exodus 1.16? Who stands in the way of that? Do you remember? The Hebrew midwives disobey. They obey God rather than men. But remember, Pharaoh isn't done with just the midwives. He also commands that all of the firstborn males would be thrown where? Or excuse me, it's not just the firstborn. It's all of the male children that they'd be thrown into the Nile. So you have a wicked king that's conspiring to kill Jewish babies. And he does. Here's the common point with Matthew. Herod's another wicked king, and he actually does kill Jewish babies again, and this time in Bethlehem. And so it shows us that there's a new exodus at hand. Another common point, the main point, God led his son, the firstborn, on an exodus. That's what Hosea 11.1 was summarizing out of Egypt 
God brought his son. Now, to protect the son, God leads Jesus on a new exodus in Matthew chapter 2. There really is a new exodus afoot. Now, this continues when you get to Israel. Think about Israel in their exodus. They are baptized through the Red Sea. They are baptized with Moses. So says the Apostle Paul, not Eric Dalma. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 said they had a baptism. What was their baptism in? It was the Red Sea. So they're baptized through the Red Sea. Well, lo and behold, when you get to Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. Why? Because there's a new exodus afoot. Now, this continues on. Do you remember after the exodus of Israel, after they're baptized to the Red Sea, where do they go? Well, they go into the wilderness for 40 years, but they fail miserably because they're sinners like us. So you have a deficient firstborn son. Where does Jesus go in Matthew chapter 4 after his exodus? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he succeeds where Israel failed. Why? Because he's the faithful son. He's the firstborn. He's the pathbreaker under salvation. He's the one who has the inheritance rights. He is the priest before God of the family of believers. Brothers and sisters, there's a new exodus afoot. In the moment you believed, at some point in your life, hopefully you've been baptized, and you know what? You're on a great exodus. You're in the wilderness now. You're on the way to the promised land. And what you have to be assured of is that if you've trust in Jesus Christ, just as he always protected the son, he's going to protect his sons and daughters. He's going to bring you to the promised land. He's going to bring you to glory. Matthew wants you to see that in the person and work of Christ, those who are connected to him, they've begun the final exodus. All because of Jesus Christ the true firstborn, the son that God protected. All right, now, let's come to some application points. Number one, we must know that Jesus' work as God's firstborn son makes believers God's firstborn as well. What I'm going to show you that's so shocking is God protects the firstborn Jesus until he doesn't. There's one point in time where he's brought to the cross, and temporarily, yes, he becomes the very wrath of God for us. But yes, Jesus is going to be exalted. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to be ascended into the heavens, and he's coming again. But for a point in time, God sacrifices his firstborn in order to make us God's firstborn. It's a beautiful picture. Now, if God goes through all of that, what you and I can be confident of is that as his firstborn, sons and daughters, God is going to ensure that we're protected forever. You and I are going to be protected because God always protects his son and his daughter. That's what we're going to find today. So let's begin with number one. God's protection of Jesus as his firstborn son is a very important concept to grasp. But what I want to do is lay out some Old Testament background so that you understand more of the firstborn and you understand how in the ancient Near East... Even pagans would have understood something of the firstborn. So, for example, in the ancient Near East, even pagan gods would require the sacrifice of the firstborn. They were going to be given the firstborn plants called the first fruits. They were to be given the firstborn animals. But notice they even required the sacrifice of a firstborn person because they're pagan gods. 
and they don't have a high view of humanity. Humans aren't regarded as people made in the image of God. Now, let me give you an example of this. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 26. Please turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 26. And what you're going to see is one thing that angered God is that when Israel would sacrifice their children to a pagan god, he became very mad indeed. Now, before we read Ezekiel 20, 26, when we read this passage, it's all about the sacrifice to a god named Molech. Now, originally, this false god, it was an Ammonite god. Its name was Melech. Do you know why? Melech in Hebrew means king. But what the Israelites did because they hated Molech, that is, the godly ones, they changed the name from Melech to Molech. The O, the Osheth, vowel pointing, means shameful. So what they did is they mocked Melech the king by saying he's not a king, he's a shameful one. Why? Because this Ammonite god said to the pagan people that worshipped him, if you want to have a bumper crop with me, you have to sacrifice not just any child, but your firstborn. And the idea is if you sacrificed your firstborn son, for example, the one that had the inheritance rights, the one who was the pathbreaker, the one who was to be a priest before God and the family, then it meant you really meant business. You were really to really sacrifice something. And so do you see how disgusting it was then to God that the Israelites wouldn't trust him, the true God, but rather they would sacrifice their firstborn to a pagan God. And so that's what we see here in Ezekiel twenty twenty six. The Lord here is rebuking Judah, and he says, And I pronounce them unclean because of their gifts, in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire, so that I might make them desolate, in order that they might know that I am the Lord. In the book of Leviticus, brothers and sisters, in Leviticus 18.21, again in Leviticus chapter 20, God warned the Israelites, If you ever worship Moloch by sacrificing your firstborn, I'm going to kick you out of the land. Ezekiel is showing that that's indeed what happened. So isn't it interesting that the true God of Israel, yes, he deserves the first because he's the true God. And so he desires the first fruits of the plants. In fact, we have a first fruits feast in the, New, in the Old Testament. He requires the first fruits or firstborn animal. Remember, if you had an unclean animal that couldn't be given to Yahweh, if it was firstborn, you had to sacrifice it. If you had a firstborn animal that was clean, I'm sorry, you had to redeem it. If it was a firstborn clean animal, you had to sacrifice it. But when it came to a human being, notice the humans, notice on the screen, they were not to be sacrificed. Why? Because human beings are made in the image of God. You don't sacrifice human beings. They're image bearers of God. And so our God was a moral God. But brothers and sisters, God would require a substitute for the firstborn. Notice in Numbers 3.12, he says, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. The first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levite shall be mine. Do you see the substitution? 
God doesn't murder firstborn children. He takes a substitute. That's why he took the Levites. The Levites are his firstborn. They're going to worship and serve him in the temple so that the firstborn children can live. Now, the reason I'm laboring this point is what is so shocking in the New Testament is Jesus, and I'll prove this to you biblically, he is certainly regarded as God's firstborn, and yet God sacrifices him for us. He sacrifices the firstborn as a substitute to make you the firstborn so that you are now considered a pathbreaker unto salvation, that you would have the inheritance rights, that you would be a priest before God, that you would always be protected and enter into glory. And so I want you to see that, yes, indeed, Jesus Christ is depicted as God's firstborn. And that's why he was brought at the right time to Calvary. Notice what it says here in Hebrews 1.6. It says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Brothers and sisters, notice the term firstborn in blue. That's Jesus. He's regarded as God's firstborn. Now, the term that we have there for firstborn does not imply that Jesus, as the Son of God, who existed eternally, came into being at a, in a point of time. The Jehovah Witnesses will take that passage and they'll say, Aha, Jesus, as the Son of God, is not eternal. No, that's not what this means. It means he is the preeminent one. He's the one who has the inheritance rights. He is the one who's the pathbreaker to salvation, all those things. He is the highest of rank of all of humanity. That's what it means. Think about this analogy. How many in here have ever read in your Bible that Jesus is the only begotten? And when you read that, begotten would seem to indicate that he came into being at a point in time. But remember, as the Son of God, he's eternal. The term begotten or only begotten comes from the Greek term monogenes. And it's best rendered not that he came into being at a certain point of time, only begotten, but rather he is the unique one. There's none like him. Who is like him? Who is truly God and truly man? Who was the one who created all things and spoke and the universe came into existence? There's none like him. That's the idea of monogenes. That's the idea of firstborn. There's none like him. Dear ones, Jesus is the firstborn. Now, notice it says here in this text, let me pull up my pointer. It says that he was brought into the world. The term for world there, oikumene, is a term that has to do with the inhabited world. But in the context of the book of Hebrews, for example, in Hebrews 2.5, the same term is used for the world to come. So the writer of Hebrews is using that term to refer to the glorious kingdom that Jesus will be a partaker, in fact, not just a partaker in, he will be the one who brings it about. And so the idea then is that, of course, all the angels will worship him in glory, because he's the firstborn son that has the inheritance rights. Brothers and sisters, you have to see Jesus really is the firstborn son. Now, we see the same idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Notice it says, regarding God's elect, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, 
so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Who is the firstborn there? Jesus is. But notice it's among many brethren. Brothers and sisters, you and I are God's firstborn as well, grafted into the promises through faith in Jesus Christ. Firstborn sons and daughters. That's true of us now. Now, let me prove that to you biblically. I want you to see that Jesus here makes us firstborn kids. All right, now, I'm going to show you a text here from John chapter 8 where Jesus was arguing with the unbelieving Jews. And remember, they were boasting in being sons and daughters of Abraham. Jesus says, no, you're just slaves of sin. But what you're going to see in this text is the great benefit of becoming a son or daughter of God. Because the son and the daughter remain in the house forever, but the slave does not. Jesus, John 8, 34 to 36, Jesus answered them saying, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Stop there. What were the Jews boasting in? Well, I'm a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus has to say, no, you're not a free person just because you're physically born of Abraham. You're a slave of sin. Notice the distinction now between the slave and the son. Verse 35, he says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Brothers and sisters, notice the son remains in the house forever. By the way, ladies, it's implied that it's sons and daughters. Sons and daughters are going to remain in the house, but the slave is going to be kicked out. It's a great benefit to be a son or daughter of the Most High, that Jesus Christ would be sacrificed to make you a firstborn son or daughter that has the inheritance rights. My son Will is here today. He owns everything that I have forevermore. (laughs) He can come into the house at any time. Many of you that have children, you know that your children are always welcome, what, in the house. That's the way it is. Those on the outside aren't always welcome in the house. But the son or daughter, they're the ones with the inheritance rights. That's what Jesus did for us, brothers and sisters. He made us God's firstborn. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because you and I really were slaves to sin. And as slaves to sin, you and I have to say that, yes, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3.23. But that bad news gets worse when we consider that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, not just temporary separation of body and soul, but one day separation of our entire being from God in the lake of fire. This news is very bad indeed. But that's where the good news of the gospel shines. That God at a point in time, because he had protected the Son through history, would bring his son at the right time to live the perfect life that we could not so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to us. The same Jesus not only lived the perfect life, but he died, Jesus the firstborn, as a substitute in order to make us God's firstborn. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. The proof that he did this was seen by the fact that on the third day after his death, 
he was bodily raised from the dead. Then he ascended to the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom and a resurrection for his people. What must we do? Well, Jesus doesn't give suggestions. He gives a command. Mark 1.15, he commands every single person to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance, what is repentance? It's a change of mind and a change of direction in one's life where you turn from sin, self, and the world. You turn from idolatry. Perhaps there are some here that are in a different religion or you're listening. You're to turn from that and turn to God on his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And if you will trust in Jesus Christ, you'll have forgiveness of sins. You'll have the promise of everlasting life in a glorious kingdom because you are indeed God's firstborn. Now, I'm going to show you where indeed in the scriptures it says that you and I as believers are firstborn sons and daughters. I'm going to show you this from Hebrews 12:23. Notice in Hebrews 12:23, the writer of Hebrews says to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, dear ones, I'm going to pull up my pointer here. I want you to notice this phrase where it says, in church of the firstborn. There's two possibilities when we look at this in English. Does church of the firstborn mean that we are the church belonging to the firstborn who is Christ? That certainly would be an option. Or does it mean it is the church consisting of the firstborn and we are the firstborn? So the point is, is the firstborn Christ here or is it us? Well, there's a simple way of proving that. Remember back in Hebrews 1.6, the term firstborn in Greek was singular. But here, Hebrews 12.23, it's plural. You and I are regarded now as the church of the firstborn. That means you and I are the ones who are considered the pathbreakers of salvation. We are the ones who have the inheritance rights, who are going to remain in the house forever, even though the slave of sin will be kicked out. We are also what in first Peter two, nine, we're a royal priesthood representing the family before God. And all that is true of the firstborn is true of us. All of the accomplishments of Christ are accrued to our account because we belong to him by faith alone. Brothers and sisters, if God went to such extraordinary means to protect his son, whether it was in Moses' day in the first exodus or in Jesus' day by this new exodus protecting him from Herod, do you think that he's going to let you perish? Do you think he'll say, ah, my sons and daughters who belong to Christ, I'm not going to protect them? No, he will protect you as well. He's going to bring you to glory. You're going to be an inheritor of all of God's promises. Now, notice here in this passage in John chapter 10 that I'm going to show you, we see that indeed you and I are eternally secure, that our inheritance rights really are promises that will never perish. Notice what happens here, John 10, 27 through 29. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I love this text. I want you to notice here, before you even get to verse 27, Jesus said in verse 26, the reason why the unbelieving Jews didn't hear him or believe him is because they weren't of his sheep. So the sheep here is synonymous with God's elect. But notice what Jesus says of his sheep, his elect. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And what you have to realize, the term hear there doesn't simply mean having sounds that go through the eardrum, but it means hearing with belief. Think about this analogy. How many in here have ever heard of the Shema? Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Does that mean just hear the sounds go through your eardrum? You're good to go. No, it means hear with belief. That's what it means. You better believe that there's only one God. It's the God of Israel. It's a point of orthodoxy. Not only hear it, but believe it. The same thing is implied here, that God's elect, his sheep, really hear Christ's voice. They really believe. Now, notice he says that he knows them and they follow him. And then he says, and I give eternal life to them. Now, the term eternal there, I prefer everlasting. And before you form a pulpit committee, let me explain why. We have eternal life, that's true, but we got to define what eternal technically means. Eternal means without beginning and without end. And technically, the only person is God who is eternal, non-contingent being, without beginning and without end. So what this is really saying is that we have everlasting life. You and I came into existence at a point in time, but our life will be without end. That is a promise that Jesus himself gives. Why? Because we're the firstborn. We're the ones with the inheritance rights. He's the one who was substituted for you and I so that you and I would have the rights and the privileges accrued to him. In fact, notice not only does he say that he gives us eternal life or everlasting life, but he says they will never perish. Let me explain something in Greek grammar. This is a negation of what's called the subjunctive mood. Let me talk about two different moods. There's an indicative mood. If I said I ran to the store, I'm indicating something I did. I ran to the store. But if I said I might run to the store, that's the subjunctive mood. It has to do with possibility. What's very interesting is Jesus isn't negating something in the indicative mood, saying it just won't happen. Listen carefully. He's negating something in the subjunctive mood, saying there's not even a possibility of it happening. It's the strongest way in all of Greek to deny the possibility of something. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John records Jesus as saying that, that there's not even a future possibility of your perishing because God always protects the Son, a daughter who belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the great promise. If God went to such great lengths to protect the son Jesus through all of history, whether it was Israel in the Exodus or Jesus in an Exodus, he's going to go to great lengths to protect you and bring you to glory. Let's talk about this for just a moment. Does this mean then because you will be protected, you will never go through hardships here and now? No. We're not promised our best life now. So don't think that if you're living as a good Christian and you're obeying the laws of the land and the laws of Christ, somehow your business will always succeed, whereas the pagans never will. No, sometimes the pagan thrives here and now, and you're going to suffer here and now. 
In fact, if you belong to Christ, more than likely you will suffer. So what kind of protection are we talking about? Well, remember in Romans 8.29, it says that those whom he foreknew, they are going to be the ones who are conformed to the image of his son. And what that means is just as Christ was the firstborn, the one who was the first fruits of the resurrection, you one day are going to be raised too. You're going to be the one who's given his kingdom. And all of the promises that are given to Christ are yours. The glory and the kingdom as you reign with him. So the promises may not be fulfilled here and now in the sense that you will never have anything go bad. But he will protect you and ensure that you'll reach glory. So perhaps you're suffering with a disease or some sort of hardship. We can affirm Romans 8.28. That God causes all things to work for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Why? His goal to protect you as his son and daughter is to bring you to glory. It's not necessarily that your business would succeed here and now, or that you never get a flat tire, you never get ill. It's to bring you to glory. And it's in that sense that God always protects his son and his daughter. Brothers and sisters, why is this important for us to learn that God always protects his son, that he always did it in history, and he's always going to protect you and bring you to glory? Because these are difficult times. Bob was talking about it in Sunday school. If you don't see these times as difficult and that totalitarianism is on the rise, you probably haven't been watching too carefully. But what you and I have to be absolutely convinced of is that, yes, you and I don't have to fear man. We only fear God. And we're free to serve him. Why? Because he's always going to protect us. As he always protected the Son, he's going to bring us to glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these promises. We thank you, Lord, that even as you protected the Son through history, in order that he would be our sacrifice, that you will also bring us to glory with him. We thank you for these promises. I do pray for the perseverance of my brothers and sisters. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be those who persevere, that we would be those who know your word and live lives that are pleasing to you. I do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would put the gospel upon our lips and give us ample opportunity in the weeks and months ahead to proclaim your goodness and your gospel so that others may know you. We pray that you would prepare hearts before us, regenerate them so that they may also believe and become firstborn sons and daughters and have salvation and the hope of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.